Hello and welcome to CA Conversations. I'm here today with Shauna Kaplow of St. Cloud State University and Kenneth Steinbach of Bethel University. They're going to be discussing creative process research. Shauna Kaplow is a Twin Cities artist and professor in the art department at St. Cloud State University in Minnesota. Kenneth Steinbach is an artist, writer, and professor of art at Bethel University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And without any further ado, I'll hand the conversation over to these two. Great, thank you. And Ken, thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, it's, I, I'm always looking for opportunities to talk about the research in the book, so uh, I really appreciate you inviting me. You're welcome. And so to start, um, your book that came out this past year is called Creative Practices for Visual Artists, Time, Space, Process. And it's a wonderful, um, very well-researched and informative book, and it's a, not a difficult read, and it's not super long, which is great for us professors, right? So um, I thought I would just start by asking you to give a bit of an overview of the book, and, and what are some of the overarching motivations for writing it? Mm -hmm. um, what process did you use in your research, and what are some of the essential themes that you cover? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I started actually writing the book about five years ago. Um, I had pitched a, a class to my colleagues at Bethel University. It was a class that was kind of based on uh, the idea that, you know, many times we, we would wish that our students would do certain types of research or invest in certain types of experimentation. But more and more, I was seeing my students doing this less and less. Uh, so I actually wanted to create a class for the students that would actually be in exclusively devoted to all of that, all the kinds of research and experimentation, um, you know, that we wish that they would do. And my colleagues were really sort of wonderful, and they they agreed to this class. Uh, and so I started teaching it. But a, a curious thing kind of happened the first year or two where I started teaching this class, and that was. I didn't really feel like I knew exactly what I wanted my students to learn. You know, uh, I have had great professors all the way through my education. I've had great colleagues, but I would say that my uh, my experience in terms of teaching, you know, has really been perhaps more anecdotal than it has been systematic. And I actually wanted to find like, uh, um, you know, create or, or find or research you know, in a systematic way, those things, like what, what it was that I really wanted my students to learn, you know, in this class. Um, so, so I started interviewing people, just, you know, calling, calling up friends basically and saying, you know, let's talk about this process. And, and then it was like, oh, I want to talk to this artist and this other artist. And, and I, at the beginning, I was really just kind of interviewing, you know, anybody that I could talk to. But after a while, I realized that I, that, um, not a lot of other people had done this and certainly nobody had done this kind of recently. Um, and after one person that I was interviewing said, well, this is going to be a book, isn't it? Uh, and I just like spur of the moment said, well, of course it's going to be a book. Why would, it, why would it not be a book? Um, and so at that point I committed, um, and uh, the, the process of, of doing this was really initially, you know, all those initial phone calls were great because, you know, the initial interviews were great because it gave me a chance to start to figure out what it was I wanted to ask uh, these artists. And it, it allowed me to kind of hone this, this group down. So in the end, I started by narrowing the, the field of people I was interviewing down. 
uh, you know, mid-career people, people that have been out of school for like 10 years at least, uh, people who have been making art consistently, people who had some type of success, whether that was success in terms, you know, commercial success, critical success, success working with, you know, maybe for social causes, you know, things like that. Um, wanted a variety of demographics and a variety of, you know, media and so on. So those are all sort of the, the things that I, um, you know, that I was sort of using to select the artists. And then it really was just a, a conversation. You know, I'd, I would, you know, find an artist, you know, contact an artist, they would agree to do it. And then I would basically look at everything that they'd ever done, everything that had been written about them, so that when I got them on the phone, I had a lot of knowledge about who they were. Uh, and and we just talked, you know, it's like, how do you do what you do? You know, tell me about your studio practice. Um, and really it was, it was over the course of about, you know, these 75 interviews that I did that, um, that the themes actually started to emerge. So I didn't go in with, you know, it's, it's like knowing I, I want to know this and this and this. It really was a lot of, you know, let's see what common practices are and then and then sort of pursue that a little bit more. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how patterns must have really started to emerge because you talk to artists of very different backgrounds and different mm-hmm. types of work and different types of disciplines. And, yeah. Um, so it's interesting how you were able to kind of formulate those commonalities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, it was a it was a little bit of a leap of faith that that there would be commonalities. I, I didn't I wasn't even really sure of that. And some of the people that I talked to said, "Well, I don't know if you're going to learn anything from what I do." But like I said, over time, um, you know, several things really, well, a lot of things really started to emerge that were were super consistent all the way through the collection of artists. Mm-hmm. So in the book, you. You do some interesting discussion about the idea of creativity and how it's it's kind of a pop terminology at this point where, you know, mm-hmm. business sector and the self-help sector are yeah. all kind of jumping on the bandwagon about, like, we all need to be more creative, right? And mm-hmm. um, the, the way that it's defined in those uh, aspects of society is you found is quite different than actually how artists work and how artists are creative. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and for example, you talked about um, that for artists, it's often very multi-layered and open-ended, welcoming of risk. Um, mm-hmm. Ambiguity is very much a part of the process, and it's exploratory rather than strictly a problem-solving kind of mm-hmm. strategy. And yeah. I think that was really interesting that you made that distinction very early on in the book. And um, and it's so true how how people want to talk about creativity as a strategy to solve a problem, and mm-hmm. which isn't a bad thing. But yeah. you then kind of launch into why there's a lot more to it, um, especially for artists. So I wondered if you could talk about what kind of definition of creativity are you operating on or, or are you... Have you come away with after doing yeah. this research? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I first started noticing kind of the the expansive terminology. I didn't even have to get out of outside of academia, you know, to understand this. It's like I, I would talk to people in our psych department at Bethel, and they would have one definition. I would talk to people in the business department; they would have another definition. And then, you know, down in the art department or in the you know theater or, or music, we had a very different definition. So even institutionally, this one word 
I mean, we were just talking about very different things. Um, in addition, you know, I, you know, my family background, I come from a family that, that is very creative in terms of just doing a lot of different things. You know, I have sisters that, you know, a million different crafts. My parents are both creative in their own ways, but, but none of them sort of make art the way that I make art. And so I've always been sort of aware of the, the terminology not really fitting very well. Um, and, you know, a, a, conclu a conclusion that I perhaps made, um, you know, as part of the book is that, you know, creativity is really, it's so multivalent that, um, you know, so multilayered and there's so many different aspects to it that, uh, you know, it really is just part of human experience. There's almost nothing that we do that isn't creative in some way. And it was perhaps less helpful to focus on creativity. And what I found, if I were to be perhaps a, a tiny bit critical of other books on creativity in the arts, is that often really what, what is happening is people are talking about sort of feeling creative. Um, you know, which is, I mean, that's fine and good, but, uh, you know, it's perhaps not something that I really saw in the, in the artists that I was interviewing. They really didn't put a lot of emphasis on that sort of emotional thing of, wow, I really felt like I got something done today. Uh, and uh, so this, you know, so a working model that started to emerge was that uh, artists are, are actually not sort of putting creativity to use in terms of, you know, tools that they're implementing to make work. Instead, what they're doing is that they are really just developing a process and they're supporting a process. And so they are sort of obviously making, but they're also doing certain kinds of researching. They're also doing, you know, certain types of you know, of, of other activities that are supporting this process out of which artwork periodically emerges. So the working definition of what I teach in this class is really about developing this process. You know, it's all about sort of sustaining this process, defining and feeding this process. Right, right. It's so interesting because it strikes me as really much more about curiosity than about making things. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's right. But would you agree with that? Uh, I, I would say it's uh, the the big contrast that I that I make. I would say curiosity and making things absolutely are two like super essential uh, parts of the process. But the big contrast with you know how we experience a lot of creativity or how creativity like even if you go into this into the psych world, creativity is almost always defined as the ability to come up with useful solutions given a problem. And so immediately you're starting with a problem. Right. Uh, and uh, and so the. And so in developing a process, what artists are doing is that they are sort of, um, you know, getting rid of, you know, the process, the problem mentality, and they are sort of self-generating, finding ways to keep this process rolling forward, um, you know, again and again and again. Right, right. Mm -hmm. One thing I notice as a teacher myself is, is that students often seem initially kind of interested in making art or attracted to the activity because they naturally kind of want to make something that they enjoy consuming. Mm -hmm. So they, they come from the popular culture and they are interested in, in creating an experience that mimics an experience they've had in the mm -hmm. world of, of objects or activities. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I feel like that's really a mimetic process and that they're, they're actually like, engaging in production in a certain way. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, about how you think about engaging students or encouraging students to explore invention rather than production, or yeah. is the way that you talk about that with mm -hmm. your students? 
Yeah, and and I have I have a lot of respect for um, you know that mimetic production. Um, I, I really think that it shapes us as makers. You know, having a certain kind of technical mastery. I mean, I remember myself in high school. I used to redraw comic books of of comics that I just loved, um, and it's amazing how much that kind of defined you know certain abilities. So so I'm not dismissive of that, but you're right that there is a you know there are some some strong limitations to that moving forward. It has to be larger than that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so the class, this class that I teach at Bethel University, I can describe that a little bit because that's really kind of based on exactly the, the question that you have. Um, the students have to take the class in association with another studio class. So they take creative practices as well as perhaps, you know, ceramics or sculpture or printmaking, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, they come in uh, in creative practices. They're required to uh, define a what I call a constellation of, of interests. You know, that has to have some media in there that has to have some, you know, perhaps I'm interested in maps or perhaps I'm interested in the portraiture, you know, things like that. Um, and I, I asked them to identify six or eight things like that and then uh, progress through this semester. Um, so the, the, the requirements that, that I have is that the students are, um, they don't work towards finished object. I require, it's all a, a time-based class. So students have to work 60 to 90 minutes a day um, and they can only experiment. They have to work five days a week. So they can only experiment. Uh, I don't allow them to make finished work. Um, and I don't allow them to work on anything for more than one day. And so they have all of these things, you know, they have sort of a pool of ideas. They have, you know, sort of this, this process of relentless experimentation. Um, and, and also we don't really critique. Uh, we do, I do ask them to bring everything that they've done in, uh, every Monday. And so every Monday we have, you know, it's called show and tell where they put things in front of their colleagues and we talk about it, but we very specifically, um, don't, don't sort of critique the things that, that uh, students have brought in. Uh, and what this does, you know, rather than sort of, you know, giving them a strategy, what this does is it kind of forces students to, you know, to generate, to self-generate ideas. And um, the biggest obstacle by far is the fact that we have really acclimated our students to this idea that they have to work towards problems or everything has to be perfect or, you know, everything has to be like high quality uh, so the first couple of weeks in this class, when students are bringing things in, they're embarrassed about it. You know, they're apologetic. They're putting in front of their colleagues in this in this way that's very bashful. Um, and so it, it actually takes a lot of time to create an atmosphere where they, they start to enjoy that freedom, you know, and they start to actually it's like, wow, you know, this thing I did, you know, this past week is perhaps better than the the, the week before, or I'm finding these new ideas that I'm really curious about. And then often they take these ideas that they're, that they're developing in my class and they're using those in the other studio classes that they're, that they're participating in. Mm. Wow. I want to take that class. Sounds great. That's actually a comment that I hear a lot yeah. uh, when, I, when I describe the class. I mean, from mid-career artists, you know, like yourselves, I, I hear that all the time and because it is, um, you know, and and I will say, you know, I, I I basically stole all the content from this class from like six other classes, uh, and and did leverage some things obviously that I had learned, but um, but this idea of sort of relentless experimentation is really uh, behaviorally based, and and I would say one thing that I did bring to the table is an awareness, perhaps after teaching for twenty twenty five years at this point, 
that uh, the problems that we have been facing with these students are really behavioral. You know, we have been acclimating right. these students to respond to failure in really specific ways. Failure is always negative for these students because of this culture of assessment that we've created. Right. Um, you know, we have been, you know, they, they don't have a positive experience with failure. They feel, they feel very uncomfortable outside of the confines of problem solving because that's, again, these are educational structures that we have, that we have set up. Um, and so to acclimate this, it really does just take a lot of, you know, you got to go into the studio and literally if you, I mean, I tell them, it's like, if you, if you can't make anything while you're there, just sit in the studio for 90 minutes, you know, listen to music, like whatever, just be in that studio. And it takes this behavioral response where you are slowly kind of breaking down, you know, these, these previous, um, reactions that they have and, and creating new ones, which are much more about autonomy, uh, you know, self-directed curiosity, as you mentioned earlier, um, and things like that. And, and it does take some time, but, uh, but we get there and it tends to be a pretty big class for the students. And at the end of the class, most often the things that they're generating in that class become like senior thesis projects or, or projects that they, they develop, uh, in other classes quite a lot. At, at what point in the sequence do they take this class? It's typically a sophomore or a junior level. Mm -hmm. See, that makes a lot of sense to me, I think, because I, you know, I teach a couple of different senior seminar classes, and we use all of the same strategies that you're talking about, but it's not quite as concentrated as, you know, mm -hmm. that's the subject matter of the class. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think if they had it earlier in the sequence, that would actually be really useful because I find that they, you know, they have two and a half or three years of assignments and then they get to this sort of open-ended thing and they aren't really, you know, their practice hasn't developed that way. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's really great to think about restructuring yeah. that. Yeah, I could, I could totally see that, that uh, how it would play out that way. Uh, another part of this class that I should probably mention is that uh, 60, 60 or 70, I forget exactly, but 60 or 70 percent of the grade is actually based on the time that they invest, uh, and which means that the student is entirely control of the grade that they're going to get. So they have to report the time every week. You know, they actually have to, like, send that to me. But uh, it's really just about time. You know, if you work 60 hours, 60, 60 minutes a day for, you know, it's on the lower end of the grade spectrum. If they work 90 minutes a day for the semester, that's an A, you know. And so they say so are really in control of it, which um, which may sound sort of like weird. Like, why are we talking about grades? But again, it's like this is we have been training students so deeply uh, to sort of respond to grades that simply giving control of that back to the student is actually pretty transformative. Yeah, that's interesting. So actually, I was going to ask you how do you, how do you, or how do the students redefine success and failure yeah. uh, when the process and openness are the goals? And so that's really an interesting um, kind of structure to give them to think about time being what they're doing instead of the product. Yeah. And it does mirror, you know, exactly, you know, in the, in terms of the research I was doing and what I was finding with the, the artists that I was interviewing, what I was, you know, really like the single biggest indicator of a successful practice, I believe, is an approach to time, which is, um, you know, successful artists going to the studio and they have really quite firm boundaries on their time. You know, they'll work from eight till noon or they'll work from, you know, Monday and Wednesday, you know, all day or they'll work 
you know, from when their kids go to bed until they, you know, fall asleep, whatever. But it's really consistent and it's not defined by, you know, I, I get the idea, I make the object, and when I'm done making the object, I leave. Uh, it's defined by these time parameters, which means that when they get done making something, you know, they'll experiment, they'll fool around with their ideas, they'll do some research, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll try another project. Um, and that was, you know, really profound, you know, that, that kind of understanding that they uh, are working very differently relative to time, which is curious to think about how we, you know, typically teach students, you know, it's like, because that's exactly the opposite of what we, of how we teach students almost entirely. It's like we give students assignments. Um, and if the student can do an A project in a half an hour, that's better than doing an A project in an hour, you know, so we're actually kind of training students to do almost exactly the opposite of right. what, um, of what professional artists, you know, successful artists do. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and that both can happen in, in one person's process, you know, like sometimes yeah. my best work happens quickly and sometimes my best work takes a very long time. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's not really relevant. And people will always ask, how long did that take you? You know, and it's yeah, really yeah. not a relevant question to me. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, really distracting, actually. <laughs> right. yeah, frustratingly inexact sometimes. Right, right. Mm -hmm. One of the um, things that you talk about and that you discovered a lot of artists do in their process is you call it productive disruptions, which I yeah. love that phrase. Um, and the, the way that artists will intentionally throw themselves off because mm -hmm. they they need to shake off a sort of habitual practice or or some sort of preconceived notion they might have had or or yeah. you know various ways that we get used to working and a lot of people you said talk about um, wanting to not know what they were doing and mm -hmm. I think that's just a great way of describing the process mm -hmm. um, and it seems like the idea of conflict and tension are really important. Yeah. Can you talk about maybe some examples uh, that you found artists are doing to mm -hmm. create that? And let's see. Um, oh, and I, the other thing I was thinking about that is just that how much trust that requires in oneself. And I wondered if that idea of trust in oneself came up in your research. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I don't I don't know that people actually phrased it like that, but um, but but by and large, um, you know, the people that I were talking to really have, I mean, they, they sort of intuitively have gravitated towards this idea that, that I'm involved in this process, you know, and periodically art emerges from this process. They don't all phrase it like that. And, and even, I mean, you have to be a little careful in how you listen to them, but that's really what they're doing is they're investing, you know, sort of investing in, in all of these, um, these different activities. Some of them were very intentional though, about, uh, you know, the phrase that I heard most often actually was throwing me off my center. Um, and, uh, one of my, one of my favorite stories was, uh, a, a woman named Christy Blizzard who told me that, you know, as a painter, uh, she said, you know, if the painting starts to get too comfortable, she'll, she'll paint like the most obnoxious thing that she can think in the best part of the painting, uh, just to sort of force herself to, um, you know, to find other strategies. Uh, I think it's, I think that that's less common, um, 
And it's perhaps a bit more distinctive to the kind of work that, that Christie does. And I think what's probably more common is this idea that people get something done and they immediately turn around and they reinvent it or reinterpret it into another project. And so, you know, the pieces just kind of keep rolling uh, forward that way. And so I think that there's perhaps uh, uh, less trust in, you know, like a final, you know, this is it kind of, you know, answer or, you know, object. And it's like, well, this is one that I'm doing. And wow, I wonder what would happen if I, if I, I took this thing or what if I added three people to the performance and suddenly did it in another location that starts to be different. Um, so I think that that that's perhaps a, a bit more common. Um, but also there was a lot of people that I talked to that, that, that talked about choosing the direction, like even earlier in their career, you know, it's like back when I was trying to decide, you know, if I was going to go into like this media or that media, I chose the one that I chose because it was much harder for me. You know, and then that like actually saying that out loud or, you know, I, I choose the direction that I do because it takes me so long, you know, and and to hear people say that out loud uh, in this culture that we live in, which is so much about efficiency <laughs> and speed uh, to, to have people say, you know, I just chose this direction because it was, you know, it forced me to, to just dwell a long time in this process. And they're literally sort of choosing what their direction is so that they are required to spend a lot of time working on these these complicated and big projects. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, and it's and, and all of these kind of represent just this huge respect for the value of sort of making objects, you know, the transformative quality of, of kind of making things. Um, you know, something that I, I often talk about with with my students is you know, artists are people that sort of, they literally sort of think through the process of making. So if the hand's not moving quite often, they're not really understanding what they're doing. It's like there's a direct connection between these two things, which is so counterintuitive. You know, that happens almost nowhere else in one's life. Um, but it actually kind of happens in the studio. Like if you're not making things, you're probably, you know, well, I don't want to say it that way. Maybe I would say, you know, the process of making is, is, continuously uh, revealing things that you can't get any other way. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, maybe I saw that a lot in, when I, when I talked to the other artists. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. You know, maybe a, a bit of an aside here too, is I, I have to say that, um, you know, one of the reasons that I wrote this book is I was really frustrated with my own practice. You know, I, this wasn't just, I mean, I sort of couched this in, yes, it's all very theoretical and I want to be a good teacher for my students, but really it was like, I, you know, I'm just stuck, you know, and I keep getting stuck in the same way over and over and over again. And I really want to do things differently. Uh, and I found that after like writing this book that like I was far worse than all of my students in this thing about <laughs> like imagining the piece before I made it. I was like the like the poster child for how to get to be 50 years old and still be doing this, you know, this crazy thing, which is so unproductive. Um, and so working on this book and having, you know, talking to all these people and actually implementing that on my own life, it really transformed my practice. I'm so much happier in the studio now. Oh, that's great. I make better stuff. So. Yeah. Well, at least I think I make better stuff. Let's put it that way. It's kind of a testament to community, too, you know, because mm -hmm. I think as artists, we, you know, the sort of traditional artists that have a studio, for example, um, I know um, Ellen, our host, is a social practice artist, uh, and mm -hmm. also probably you deal with community in a whole other set of ways, but for the studio artist to implement this real process of talking to a lot of other, I think you talked to about 70 artists, you said, that, you know, really yeah, 
building community around this process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and and one of the criteria that I had, I suppose now that now that the book is out, the jig is up. But one of the um, you know the the criteria that I had that I didn't mention before was that I kind of wanted to be intimidated by these people a little bit. I don't, I wanted to talk to people who I thought were better artists than me. Um, you know, all the way along, you know, so I could really learn something from them. And I didn't want it like almost without exception. I didn't know the people beforehand. There were a few that I did beforehand, but I really just wanted to talk to people who, who I felt like had were way better than me. And, uh, um, and for the most part, I was really, well, for, for all these artists, I, that's really what happened. Yeah. And I was able to talk with like really amazing people. That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have, I have one more question question if we have time for it which is um in the in the process of teaching this course creative practice i'm curious how did you address aspects like the subconscious the intuitive chance and accident or simultaneity of opposite things or seemingly opposite things is that does that come up because in the description you do describe the course really in great detail um, mm-hmm. in the book, which I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I noticed it didn't include some of those more mercurial aspects of one's, you know, identity or persona and, and how that affects the creative process. Is that something you talk about? Um, we, we do tend to have a, you know, a range of conversations, you know, the, the structure of the class, which is, you know, which is you read the final chapter in the book is the structure of the class. There's a lot of of notes, uh, but even in the course of conversations within the class, within the show and tell sessions, um, you know, we, uh, some of those ideas, um, uh, yeah, they, they come up a bit more than others. So, um, you know, I think that I will say, I actually, I, I perhaps don't talk so much about subconscious, but I do think that we're very. One of the things that I that I am constantly telling my students is that um, that we typically are smarter or better than we give ourselves credit for, and things that that emerge while we're working are often the result of um, you know a part of our mind. You could call it the the subconscious. Uh, you know, sort of emerging and and you know having a voice. Um, and I think one of the, the things that I really enjoy doing is, you know, occasionally students will will make these pieces and like for show and tell, they're required to bring literally sort of everything that they've done. And I really emphasize this. And so the first couple of weeks, I can tell they're editing it out. But after a while, they get comfortable and they actually start bringing in everything. And often, you know, students will I'll ask them to talk about them. We don't critique. We specifically don't critique, but we do have conversations about them where they, they talk about them. And the student will talk about all these other things and maybe like one or two off to the side that they won't talk about. And those are sometimes the best ones. You know, it's like, well, what is that about? It's like, where do these come from? And often it's like, well, I don't really know. Um, mm-hmm. And so it is, uh, it is a matter of sort of giving people perhaps a voice or, or maybe somebody just does a little, you know, this happens, a, a, you know, fairly often or somebody will do a little gesture, like, like film themselves in sort of a funny situation. It's like, wow, this is really a pretty nice object that you did or this performance that you did performance. I'm not a performance artist. That's not what I'm interested in. It's like, well, I'm sorry. You, <laughs> video, and it sort of looks like that to me and it's actually pretty nice. Um, you know, so things like that, I think happen where, where, where objects of, 
of great value and import will emerge as part of an unintended process and and literally just sort of showing students you know how to value it's like you should value that you know um i think that that's a, a really fun teaching moment because i think it happens uh, a lot you know because often students get get hung up in this idea that if i didn't intend to do it that it's you know it really doesn't mean anything and i'd say well there's a part of your head that sort of intends things, whether you consciously are aware of that or not. So I guess in, in some respects, we do talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Well, wonderful. Mm -hmm. well, thank you so much, Ken. I've really enjoyed talking with you. This is great. Thank you. And thank yeah. you both. This has been super interesting. We really mm -hmm. appreciate your taking the time and talking today as a part of the CAA Conversations podcast. Thanks. Thank you.